right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on, except you, you, you'd probably be an expert on this by now. I think I am. The Byzantines. I think I am. I think I've read enough. What does that say? What do they say? 50 books? 50 books and you're an expert. Okay. Well, all right. No, I'm not an expert then. I'm like halfway to being an expert. I think I've read like 20 to 30 books on the Byzantines at this yeah. point. How many How many pages on average would that be? Fucking hell. Jesus, that would be a tough question. Like let's say, well, I don't know, 300, 200. Not bad. Good effort. I cannot believe how much effort I've put into this. And I really, this is the other thing that I'm trying to get to the bottom of now. And I'm sorry that I keep having to inundate people with this. Although I think it's become a bit of a meme within my, I keep using twitchy words now, community. <laughs> how obsessed I am with it. But, yeah, I kind of want to get to the bottom of why I'm obsessed with it because that needs to be an integral part in the next stand-up special that I'm developing at the moment. And also, uh, oh God, this is the other thing that's the huge problem. This has never happened to me before in a stand-up show before. I know too much. I can't find the hilarity in it anymore. I'm out. Like, it's just, it's, it's there's, there's too much to tell people. I've turned into that. I've turned into that overly autistic lecturer who when everyone's leaving, they're just like, if you want to know more about the middle Byzantine era, consult your local library. Like I just just really, really like the subject and I can't put my finger on why. Well, see what I mean? There's not, there's, there's certain, uh, there's certain aspects of artistic representation where stand-up may not even be the best medium. That's exactly what I was talking about. You've got too much information and you feel like it can't be condensed into a one-hour show and you especially cannot find the hilarity in something so poignant and serious as this entire epoch of history that has ramifications that we're still reeling from today. So maybe you should focus on like a subset of it or just, I don't know, the the life of the guard or <laughs> just like one little aspect of the uh, Byzantine Empire, maybe you could do a show on that. I could, but this is the other problem. I think that I also need to, because like this, this is the core of what I'm getting at, right? Is it like what you summed up there. It's just like, I need to describe to people just how epic that struggle was and how different life would be if they failed, it, it what needs to be conveyed to people. It? That's the if I really need to sum okay. it up into a sentence, that's what needs to be conveyed. The maintenance of classical ideas that were then able to be passed on through Europe after the Dark Ages is that the main aspect of the struggle, or it'd have to be. Look, there's a, there's a few aspects going there. I would imagine that at the core of it. Those libraries burn, no Western civilization, none. It's yeah. gone. Wow. It's gone. Now think about that. As a man of culture, Jesus Christ. Like, and, and the fact that if if it wasn't the absolute, like just the city of Constantinople well, it was, itself, yeah, right? The, the Renaissance wouldn't have happened. Renaissance wouldn't have happened. Enlightenment era mm. certainly wouldn't have happened. And if you have no Renaissance and you have no Enlightenment era, what do you have? Permanent dark ages. Yeah, you have no, you don't have the art that came about in the Renaissance. That's I'm, a, I'm reading about that now. So we're kind of reading about similar-ish things. Right. Okay. Like about like trying to aspire to something greater. Yeah. Well, That's the summary of it. Yeah. Because it's just like. It's beautiful. Yeah. Renaissance art. It's is just like, why are we even trying art anymore? It's done. Like it just, it, it peaked yeah, then. <laughs> That's the end. There's not, like I'm sick of this shit of just like, yeah, there's other ways of expressing it. It's just like, yeah, but none of them are as good as that. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite remarkable what was achieved then artistically. It's kind of a and, bit the same as classical music. It's like, okay, I get that there's other types of music that can get you jumping or like put you in a different vibe or whatever, but that's all we're exploring now is just vibes. Like in terms of just yeah. like peak of what the art is, it's like, I'm sorry, it doesn't beat 
a symphony with like one guy and a grand piano on on an opera house stage. It doesn't beat it. Mm. Mm. Um, some of the some of the artwork that I've been reading about. But anyway, uh, well, that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Byzantines. Am I correct? Certainly not. Uh, well. No, no, it wouldn't because the the ideas that were protected that uh, inspired that art would be dead. Yes. That's what I've, yes. Would be gone. And, Mm. like, it's it's just phenomenal even thinking about the fact that that city existed in the first place because for that to happen, the Emperor Constantine, which is named after, needed to realise that, like, the, the world of ancient Rome, like the ancient world, because this is the whole thing. Like what Constantinople protected was really, if you think about it, and and this is just such an incredible gift to the world for a thousand years, it protected an epoch of organized human thought. What a legacy. Like, you know, like if, if, there would be so few things. You know how they just sort of like kind of know what hieroglyphics meant and there's still so many questions about it because there was just that one Rosetta Stone that by chance survived, you know? And then so as a result of that, there's just like an entire, you know, society and civilization that will always just be a mystery to us because there's just not enough for us to translate. Same with the Aztecs. It's actually the same with people on Easter Island. There's just all these intranslatable things. But, like, we are talking about an entire continent, essentially, that was controlled by one society for a thousand years and all of their ideas that really it took us until very recently, like maybe the 20th century in a lot of ways, to meet those people's living standards back then. All of those ideas would have gone, which meant that we wouldn't have ever had them. But for that to happen in the first place, it meant that Constantine, the emperor back then, must have realised the world shifting. Like, this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a visionary leader as he he really is one of the most underappreciated figures in history. And people, when they go into him, obviously, like everybody else, they always just focus on the dark shit that he did, right? Like, he killed his his child and, he, and, his, and his wife and all this kind of shit. And they always focus on that, but it's just like, dude, there are so few people in human history that have shaped the world like that man did. He would, he would have to be of a tiny handful, like, dude, so much more than someone like fucking Martin Luther King or JFK or some shit, you know? Way more. Like, he, I, he realized <laughs> we can't defend Rome anymore. Like, it's, the world, like, this, something's happened. Yeah. Like we're not in this kind of golden age. Like this, there's an old saying from a historian that was writing about it around the time, which was like the empire descended from a golden age to one of iron and rust. And I think that really summarizes what happened. Like it was like these institutions exist. The Roman army is there. It can still defend people, but there is this struggle against this seemingly endless onslaught of barbarians that just came seemed to be teeming in from somewhere. And we now know it was because climate change made like the steppe region, which is kind of, I guess, you know, Mongolia to Russia, that whole area a lot more fertile, which meant that they were just having so many more kids, which meant that they were pushing onto like what they call barbarians and Germans and they were pushing them out of their land. So it was really like refugees, climate refugees that were just pouring into the empire and they were just like, what the fuck is going on? And they were trying to keep them out, but it was just like eventually that weight kind of forced like half of it to collapse. Well, that's going to happen in the next hundred years, isn't it? Yes. Whether they're barbarians with an army, I don't know, but there's going to be a lot of climate refugees and birth rates are increasing overall. Well, the population in the world is increasing everywhere. Yes. Um. Now the distances are different and they don't like those geographical protections. But this is what I'm talking about. Like in that environment, because this is the whole thing, right? Like somewhere like Australia that's isolated, no big deal. There is the most competitive hotbed of civilizations to have ever existed in Europe. 
constantly fighting and clashing against one another. And in that environment, he realized, okay, we're going to have to, and, and the organization of these people back then, we're talking 300 AD, we're going to do a survey. I don't know how the fuck he did this or even thought about this. It's insane. We're going to do a survey of the entire empire and we're going to find the most impenetrable geography in all of Europe and we're going to build a city from nothing into an impenetrable fortress city that was impenetrable until cannons existed. And even then when cannons existed, the only reason it fell is because someone forgot to lock a fucking gate. Like it's 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 breathtaking how much the world owes that man just in itself. But then for every single generation after that to recognize something, this is the thing, right? Like when I think about the man that died in Constantinople, which is there's another beautiful poetry to it. It's kind of like the end of the West Roman Empire, how the Roman Empire was formed by Romulus in mythology. He's one of those two babies that you see drinking off of the wolf teat. The first emperor was Augustus. The last emperor was Romulus Augustulus. Romulus Augustulus meaning little Augustus. There is a beautiful poetry to the end of that, like this, this just nice little bow on that epic chapter of humanity. And it's even more so when it comes to the fall of the East Roman Empire, right? Like it was founded by Constantine and it ends with Constantine the 11th dying wow. on the walls that that man built. The, you can tell this is going to be a, a this is going to go into some uh, deep and very poignant areas and I'm going to have to quickly uh, put in our sponsors. Do it. <laughs> One do of it, which it, is uh, Steady Freddy. If you suffer from premature ejaculation. Holy fuck. <laughs> Jesus. I get sick of you- <laughs> Oh, my God. I, I was waiting for the right time to put it in there, man. There's nothing that I could – there's no point that I could actually put oh, that in. <laughs> Um, if you suffer from uh, premature ejaculation, go to steadyfreddy.com. <laughs> get yourself some of their delay spray. It's uh, <sighs> help your premature ejaculation. One in three men suffer from premature ejaculation. It doesn't just mean you come in 30 seconds. It could be uh, you want to last longer than 10 minutes. It just could be you just want to last longer generally. And they also have... Uh, uh, condoms, wet wipes, ball boost tablets, a large array of men's sexual <laughs> products. It <laughs> feels so out of place. <laughs> Go to steadyfriendly.com. You too could make the next Constantine. Yeah, that's right. I bet you he had a hard dick. <laughs> So you want to go to steadyfreddy.com, use the code Neil Jordan, and you get 15% off, okay? Steadyfreddy.com. And we're also sponsored by Crush Organics. That's Crush with a K. Use the code Neil. You get 40% off their huge range of CBD oils and CBD oil products. They've got a huge range of oils, all with different uh, intensity and and uh, flavors and oils that are appropriate for nighttime, for the day. They got it all. So go to crushorganics.com, use the code NEIL, N-E-E-L. You get 40% off. Okay, and for, that's a hilariously timed promo. Um, yeah, <laughs> now we're gonna truly amazing. Back on to one of the most poetic and, and I was uh, saying, significant no stories of history. make jokes about this. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You just, that's, <laughs> that's it. You just put an ad for Steady Freddy Dude, halfway through. Come on, that would be a great sketch. Wouldn't it? That would be a great sketch. No, doing a very serious podcast and then someone's just like breaks the podcast with just like a, a sponsorship that just has nothing. That just completely changes the tone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you want a waifu pillow, yeah. <laughs> Subscribe to hentaiplus.com. Oh, and <laughs> hentai plus. Rage, Shadow Legends. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good sketch. Yeah. I no, like that a lot. 
Big shout out to the sponsors. Show, dude. And yes, Constantine. So you don't think you can you know, you know surmise the significance of the Byzantines in a stand-up show, in a one-hour stand-up show? Well, e- even if you could do that, you can't make it funny. It's just too serious. It's not that it's... It is, it is extremely serious, the ramifications of this, but it's also... It, it's, I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I feel like this is the other thing as well. I feel like it's really hard to explain to people the epicness of it. That's the difficult part because... I don't know, like after reading so much about it, you just realise like Have you have you read any It's just like better than any fantasy book ever written. In fact, have you okay, read any different interpretations? Huh? Have you read are there any different interpretations? What is the are there any critiques of that reading of history? Are there are there, are there any works out there that would sort of question some of those historical events or is it all? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the usual historian kind of like, well, this source contradicts this source in general though. No. And I'll tell you why, because it was the last bastion of civilization. That's why, because everything else outside of this tiny compacted area of Turkey and Greece had descended into Basically the apocalypse. I've heard while Europe was in the Dark Ages, there was a flourishing of art and culture in the Arab world and they also kept a lot of the ideas from Greek and Roman civilization and were able to eventually pass that on. because they stole it off them. That's why. Because after, this is the whole thing, once the Arabs took all of that area, uh, they had no idea how to, because they were nomadic people and this is always the ebb and flow. It was the same with the Turks. Once nomadic people settle down, they have no idea how these institutions run. And so they just say to the people that are running the institutions, can you keep running them and we'll just collect the tax from now on. So they did keep those things going. That's definitely true. But that is still an extension of what is now known as the Byzantine Commonwealth, which is that they were able to create this kind of like world order in that era through this sort of rudimentary missionary work of Christianizing, say, the Bulgarians and then the Russians and then the Norwegians and Finnish and spreading those ideas that way. And then on top of that, keeping those institutions that uh, otherwise would have just been completely devoid in, say, the Arabic world, gave them those Basic institutions that keep a society going, like institutions of governance. Let's do you know? Say. Do you know when Orthodox Christianity and Catholicism split? Uh, that's a very murky timeline, extremely murky. But really, I would say that people would always say that, like the, you know, the Holy Roman Empire being formed and the Pope announcing that that guy is the. Uh, King Charlemagne is like the king of the Holy Roman Empire would be the point where the Pope kind of said, we've got our own brand of Christianity here in the West. Now, after that, there's like this big power play and there's this endless divide between the two and like it's only in the very, very, very last stages of the Byzantine Empire that uh, the Catholics are able to kind of just penetrate into the uh, Greek Orthodox religion. And I was always just very disinterested by that whole religious part of the Byzantine Empire. But now, like what I was telling you before about reading that um, those soldiers' manuals and realising that they always just started with prayer and they said that the most important part of a general's like entire fighting capacity is to gain favor with God and make sure that everything that he is doing is in in tune with God. 
I realize how integrated it is to the story of Byzantine culture and therefore I truly do think that if they didn't have this unwavering faith in Christian orthodoxy, what's to stop them from just giving up and allowing the Arabs to engulf Turkey and Greece? Because they sat there and they fought an endless guerrilla war that went past so many generations, longer than this entire country's history, right? 300 years of endless Arabic raids. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of men going into uh, Greece, uh, going into, uh, sorry, Turkey, and just causing absolute devastation and havoc throughout the whole thing. And so, they, they, and also on top of this, taking away, I reviewed this out the other day, four-fifths of their wealth. So when they took Egypt, when they took, uh, you know, Syria and all of these places, that was four-fifths of the empire's wealth. Gone. One in every five dollars of the empire out of the treasury gone, and they had to somehow reconfigure the empire of what was left to defend it against this now extremely wealthy, extremely zealous enemy, which was the Muslims. And the Muslims, this is the way that they described it, right? Turkey was known as the house of war in Arabic world. The rest of the Arabic world was known as the house of peace. And if you died in the house of war, instant ticket to heaven. So there was this endless army of zealots ready to die, running through their lands for 300 years, and they were able to keep them out. And they were able, and, and it, was, it, it was just dirty guerrilla warfare for that entire time. It was just this kind of stream of, as I was saying before in Lord of the Rings, how they have that, that scene where Gondor tells Rohan that it's in trouble by lighting up all those beacons along the mountains, that actually existed. That happened in the Byzantine era and it was because normally it would take about maybe a month if you were galloping the whole way to go from Turkey to Greece, from the end of Turkey to Greece, to tell the emperor, like, we're having a lot of trouble here. They started that fire beacon system and that fire beacon system would light up and they'd say, you know, uh, raiding season had started because like throughout the entire medieval world, it was just basically suicide to do anything during winter because your supply lines would just be so stretched. So it was usually that's when you would know this is when it is. And then the emperor would have to come up with some kind of defensive strategy to try and defend the people of Anatolia, which is what it was called back then instead of Turkey. And the strategies that they came up with were immense and they were detailed and it's truly incredible thinking about how professionalized this army was in comparison to the rest of the world at the time. Like, How did they know if there was just constant guerrilla warfare for 300 years, had they not run out of men and people to fight? This, this is what I think it kind of just goes back into, which is that the, the lifetime, because we don't know much about it because there was just so few people left in Anatolia because of this endless stripping of endless warfare, endless raids, endless them Arabs taking them as slaves and then taking them back to just sell into the slave markets of Arabia and all this kind of stuff. So it was very sparsely populated and obviously it was just this realm of total war. It was the house of war. It was just 300 years of total war. There's very little that we know about the time. Obviously they must have just been extremely hard, rigged men, but- we do know that in spite of the fact that this was happening, despite the fact that this would have just been the most hotly contested zone, there'd be very few examples in history of a war that was this bitter, that lasted this long, that was this exhausting, and it still kept going. And there's a couple of explanations for that, but it all just comes back to this main synthesis idea that I have, that Fortress Constantinople was able to keep the mind, body, and soul of Europe alive. Well, everything else just extinguished into darkness, like the institutions of ancient Rome kept pumping, like you still had universities pumping out scholars. You still had churches that were pumping out priests, which was like a different type of scholar. Uh, you had schools, you had hospitals, you had a bureaucracy that was seen like nothing else until maybe the 
till Napoleonic era, really. Like just no bureaucracy on earth was anywhere near as efficient and also as extensive uh, and also responded to all kinds of things, not just, you know, gathering an army, but, you know, like when climate change, because they it was, it was around so long that there was mini ice ages and things that endured when it was like really, there was a bitter winter coming in, like the emperor decreeing that he would be making all of these shelters along the empire and then people could huddle in there and so they wouldn't freeze to death and their livestock could go in there and all these kind of like government-run programs were endlessly running throughout this time and very sophisticated despite the fact that they had very little money in comparison to what they still had. Now, the reason that I think that it was still going is actually goes back to I think that it really was faith that kept it alive. Like when you strip everything back, Greek orthodoxy was so important to these people that they would endure those horrific, bleak conditions, a true hellscape, for 300 years and they kept on the fight. And it makes a lot of sense when you go back and you read their military manuals and it just starts with a a prayer to St. Mary and like... The, the first strategy that it has before anything else is just like, you know, you, you really have to make sure that you're in favour with God before you even think about, like, military strategy or logistics or anything like that. And this would have been instilled into everyone's mind. And this is the other massive advantage, but they all kind of just play into each other as well because the Byzantine Empire at the time, 40% literate. That still blows my mind to this day. During the Dark Ages, 40% of the population could read and write. To give you a comparison in what was happening in the rest of Europe, first of all, we don't know what the literacy rate was because literacy was so sparse that, like, nobody kept records of that shit. Like, you're lucky if people kept records of the king's livestock or, like, you know, like, even in courts of kingdoms, it would be very common if everyone in the kingdom was illiterate, like in, in the court. Give you an idea, the Holy Roman Empire, the most powerful state superstructure since the fall of the West Roman Empire in the, West Ro- in, in the former West Roman Empire, the Emperor Charlemagne himself couldn't read. The Pope could, and he actually used to do a lot of the administration within the papacy, Because, yes, okay, on average, a lot of the priests were literate, but they still weren't. Like, And and then you would have, in the Byzantine Empire at the same time, bakers that would have been literate, merchants that would have been literate, farmers that would have been literate. Were there schools or did parents pass the literacy down to their children? They had schools. That was not a concept in the rest of Europe. Like, I don't even know if hospitals were a concept in the rest of Europe. I don't They had poor houses and orphanages and all these government-run programs still pumping all throughout that, all throughout that bleak 300-year period. They would still be running these social programs. Um, and I think that also it was literacy that helped keep the Byzantine experience alive. It was it was the fact that like, you know, literacy, if you're able to read holy texts, you're obviously able to understand the holy text better and what you're actually fighting for. And on top of that, you're also going to know if you're a soldier and you're literate, you're going to know military strategy and tactics. And this is the whole thing, like the, the, the array of tactics that the Byzantine army had at its disposable, at its disposal in comparison to any other army of its time. So versatile. Uh, they could be fighting steppe tribes that are coming in from Russia on horseback. They could be fighting nomadic camel fighters in uh, that were coming in from Europe and all this kind of stuff. They could fight people with different styles, like you know the the barbarians of the West that would be coming in, the 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 Persians. All these they had very very different military styles, and they had manuals outlining what their strategies were and how best to adopt to them. And for those strategies to work, the average soldier would have had to have been literate. So they had this unbelievably versatile uh, 
array of strategies that they could choose from that no other army could even compete with back then. And also because of the taxation of it, to give you an idea of how well and, and uh, efficient their taxation system was, which really is just the lifeblood of any civilization. This is another thing that I really need to point out in this. It's just like, you don't have tax. You really don't have an organized society. You can't. It's impossible because that's the thing that's going to make sure that these kind of institutions keep going. And if those institutions die, as we see, right? Like if you have an illiterate army, they're going to be dumber than an army that is literate. Uh, but uh, when the Byzantine Empire had shrunk to basically just Constantinople, it had like a couple of tiny little islands and like this little part of Greece down here, little, little pieces. We're talking about the dying ages of it and last hundred years of its uh, existence, I suppose. It was able to accumulate more tax revenue than most of the kingdoms of Europe. That is an efficient tax system. It had basically no land whatsoever and it was accumulating more in its treasury than say France or Spain was. How? Because they just got it right. Like the Romans got it right. They, they knew how taxation was supposed to work. It was instilled into the population. And again, like I'm saying before, there is this spirit that came from it because there was also this other element, like I'm talking, uh, it wasn't just Greek orthodoxy that was kind of animating these people to defend their homelands. It was also just the concept, like I talked about in the other previous podcasts, and now I've forgotten the word again, polita, I think it is. You're a citizen. And as a citizen, you owe things to the state. But in return, the state owes you things. So it was deeply ingrained into the psychology of the, the average Roman, because that's what they were called, not Byzantines. They, they know, knew themselves as Romans. It was ingrained into their psychology that tax was a good thing and that they had to pay tax. Now, this isn't to say that there was always tax avoidance and there was people that were, like people always writing about tax and shit like that, but like they kind of understood its necessity. So there was all these things that were working towards it. It was just like a, a, a part of life that was certain. And so it was always there to be harvested and it was always there to, uh, for the availability of the state to trickle into all of these programs that kept these things running. And so I'm kind of at the stage now because now like I, I like what I was talking about before I think with you in the podcast was that it was like I was I was discussing mostly what caused the decline of the Byzantine Empire, which is probably remember it was just about Venice. Essentially creating this new aristocracy that didn't need to be tied to land and could use all of these tools of wealth extraction that were just an accumulation of wealth based off of nothing really. Uh, and as a result of that, they weren't tied to any land. And so they just went to wherever was most powerful at the time. And then they would suck that country of its wealth and then they would move on to the next one. And that uh, aristocracy exists to this day, this, this sort of transcendent aristocracy which really did, and this is the really insidious part that I learned about afterwards, actually might interest you as a man of philosophy. When those books that they kept alive for a thousand years behind the Byzantine walls, when those went into Europe, it was obviously Venice that took great interest in what their library was. And this is where the Renaissance starts to come in, in the Enlightenment age especially. There's two predominant philosophies that the average Byzantine person of the ruling class would have understood, right? Which was mostly just Plato and Aristotle from the ancient world. Yeah. They didn't want Plato taught, but the Venetians really pushed in all universities across Europe, in all intelligentsia that they funded, because this comes into the idea that a lot of uh, in the Enlightenment era, there was a lot of discrimination, I suppose, I guess the word is or like just, just like complete belittling of the Byzantines' contribution to history, just outright. Weren't Romans, stripped that away from the reason they didn't want that to be part of their 
identity is because Rome was just synonymous with civilization. So they wanted that completely gone. They weren't Romans. They were now Byzantines or actually more disparagingly Greek, as I talked before. They're not Byzantines. They're not Romans. Uh, but another part of what it was is that they really didn't want anything that Plato's philosophy was based off of seeping into the way that Europe was educating itself. Uh, and so they wanted the incarnation of what Western civilization is now. It could have taken a very different path and it was on a very different path in the Byzantine area. So like a lot of these ideas of you belong to the state and the state belongs to you and God is this sort of manifestation of uh, service to him and that you should have... You should be aiming for something more than what is, which means obviously kind of just having this removal away from material objects. That that is that that is a lot of like Plato's teachings in life. Aristotle, and this is what they were very interested in, and this is where it kind of ties into something you'd probably be interested in as well. It, it's more in the grounds of postmodernism. Aristotelian thought, this isn't all of it, and I'm doing a huge butchery of it, and I'm nowhere near an expert on it, but I did, was reading a book about like why they, were actually listening to a lecture about why they wanted to rid this kind of idea of what Plato was talking about and keep Aristotle. Aristotle is more about this idea that who's to say what's right and wrong? You don't know. Everyone's got a different perspective in life. What What is morality? Just always taking things out and like giving no you, definite of what you should strive for and go on. You're not getting them mixed up. You, you wouldn't be. No, for some reason I thought it was the other way. Okay, yeah, no, the, I'm definitely not an expert in that as well. Neither am I. Maybe I am getting it mixed up entirely and I've made a huge ass of myself. I just know that one of those two. Yes, I know to- one of them is, yeah, one of them is, yeah, I must be mixed. No, I'm sure you're far more well-versed than that. I'm. I'm not far more voice of all. I've 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 just read this one. Sorry, just just listen to this one lecture that was talking about like what the Venetians were pushing into Europe as like a as a, as like an intellectual framework. My and again, very rudimentary understanding of the. I for some reason I thought Platonic thought was actually more like the. I suppose rationality where you can just sort of reason your way to I to truth and then. I think it was Aristotle that was more based in like the material where you needed evidence and it's sort of more empirical. One of them was that and one of them was the other, but maybe I'm, I, yeah, look, I, again, I'm probably butchering that as well. But that was my You probably could be right about what he was saying because like from what I'm understanding, what they were saying is that Plato's theories and look, I know fuck all and there's going to be all these smug got, people in the comments I'm going to do a very quick Google because this is something we should get right. I'm going to do a very quick Google yeah, search. Yeah, yeah, do it because this keep is actually going to help me out a lot. Keep um, well, either way, I know that uh, the Venetians were very, very... Hellbent on eliminating one of these two schools of thoughts, whichever one we figure out it is at the moment. I don't know. This is, this is actually something that is interesting because I remember thinking about it and now I've just forgotten about it for ages and now I'm remembering it again. But they wanted to, they wanted to get rid of one of these schools of thought and the reason they wanted to get and keep another school of thought because the other school of thought kept this idea of like, eh. yeah, I actually got that right. So go for it, go for According it. to conventional view, Plato's philosophy is abstract and utopian, whereas Aristotle's is empirical, practical, and commonsensical. Okay. Now. That's just a quick, that's a very quick Google search. Yes, but this does not, this doesn't answer the question that I need answered then. It's good to know that. But this actually could just uh, understand. I'm going to have to look into this heaps now. But from what I understand, whichever one it was, one of them was kind of like aiming for something that's like, you know, you should be educating your society, these kinds of things. 
yeah? Where the other one kind of, this is pretty much what I'm getting at. One acted as this idea that society is there to forever improve and that you should be aiming for an ideal and there's a right and wrong and all this kind of stuff, right? And then the other one was this kind of idea of like, no, just uh, the hierarchy is what it is. Just keep that there. And uh, what is morality? Who the fuck knows? And so it acted as a rationalization for the kind of understanding that we have of the world now, which is exactly why when they're always talking about like the IPA and all this kind of stuff, and they're talking about a time that we need to go back to, it's always the Enlightenment era. And the reason that they want to go back to the Enlightenment era is because the Venetians funded the intellectual hardware that created the Enlightenment era. And it was all based off of this one philosophical outlook on life, whichever of those two it is, um, which kind of just acted as a rationalization for the ruling class to sort of use government for its own whims. And this was kind of just trained into society. It's kind of like when I was listening to Jordan Peterson talking to this uh, North Korean refugee and they were saying, what was it like in there? And then she was kind of like, you don't actually realize that the society is like terrible when you're in it because you've got nothing to compare it to. And she was just saying it was like when she read George Orwell's Animal Farm that she realized what had happened to North Korea. And I think that that's sort of what's happened to us living in what is now Western civilization because it's kind of just, this is just so deeply embedded into how we see the world that it's kind of just taken for granted now. But as I was kind of like getting at before, medieval Europe did not think anything like we think of like now. Like it's, it's really hard. I know that you kind of, if you even thought about it for a second, you'd be like, yeah, okay, obviously like a, a civilization that didn't have like cars and iPhones and shit is going to think very differently to our society. But that's not even getting close to it. There was like what a- What are some of the most stark differences in those fundamental views of society? Okay, for instance, let's just think about this. Do you think any military manual now would start with a prayer to the Virgin Mary and then before anything else just be like, look, whatever happens in warfare, we have our faith in God that he is going to make it go to like uh, uh, the, the way that he wants it to go and we understand that we're just playing our part here and we just hope that we do right by him. Well, I wouldn't know what, what's in a military manual, but I'm sure there's a lot of uh, passionate Christians in particularly the American army. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. But I don't think that it's embedded into the institution itself. Like what, what, what the philosophy behind the US military now would be is nothing but total victory at all costs. And it wouldn't even be that. I would imagine if you read any military manual, there wouldn't be any philosophy behind it. It would kind of just be like, this is how you operate the latest model in drone. Yeah, I mean, I can't speculate on what's in a military ma- manual. Um, I Yeah, I, I doubt that's done with a prayer, but what are you, are you saying that this, you know, Western society today is devoid of transcendental meaning? Because it wasn't that long ago when there's definitely more religiosity in, in Western society. You could even go back to before the 1960s and say that there was a very strong Christian underpinning to, at least at least in, in theory, I don't know what the actual practicality was, but there was just far more religiosity throughout the society definitely um so how would that would that differ to the middle ages conception of christianity the the 1950s west well like okay when it comes to that i've got no idea because i'm not a theologian and like the the idea of like studying 
religion to that level like really bores me. But I will say, you know, you look at the buildings and even when you're talking about Renaissance art, you look at what that society was producing. Like even its fortified walls are a work of art, let alone their works of art. Anything that you see from the Byzantine era that is art brings a tear to your eye. And these were, like they were in the, in the Renaissance era, some of these artworks, the artists knew they wouldn't see finished in their lifetime. And they would be training an apprentice artist so that when they died, they'd be like, you just pick up the brush and finish off what I did. There's serious foresight in this, right? Like there's, these were people that were living not for the physical world. They were living well beyond that. I think a good encapsulation of like medieval Europe was when they said that this was a, this was a world that was much more temporal than ours is. The, the the struggles of daily life were transcended because I think that this is honestly something that happened in that 300-year war for Anatolia. And when were I the c- exact, was which period of time was those 300 years? Uh, probably like 600 to 900, something yeah. like roughly, roughly around that, and probably maybe 950 to six, 650 to 950 or something. Um you would need to be aiming for something more in life if you were going to continue on with a total war in conditions that were probably worse than what Africans see today. I would imagine, I would imagine that would be horrendous living in that time. Something must have been bigger than life itself to you to endure that. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just let the Arabs take it? What's stopping? If 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 it's just like, look, they're just going to grab me. I'm going to become a slave. I'll probably at least be fed properly. Might be in a warmer climate. I don't know. Like, or, or you know, just, just like the, the will to keep resisting surely would have waned after a few generations. And so you're saying the society today doesn't have those transcendental, deeper, uh, you know, elements of deeper meaning that they that they had then. No, I think that they were much deeper. And I think that this is actually a really good way of saying because don't you think that spirit and endurance are kind of linked? Don't you what, think when people say something like, okay, the spirit is willing, but the fresh, but the flesh is weak. What are they saying there? Someone may have the will to continue on with whatever they're doing, but the, their, their physical anatomy is not- Up for the job. Permitting that, yeah. So it's will. Yeah. It's like willpower. Like, like spirit is very closely linked to will. Yeah. Yeah, when you're when you're fighting for something or even living or whatever your your actions may be, if they're in pursuit of a loftier ideal than pleasure for the self or whatever, you know, whatever myopic uh, goals we may have in today's society, sure, then that will be greater motivation and probably just more ammunition for you to go on further. I mean. Surely. Whether it's a placebo or not. I mean, the, these things, I'm pretty sure there's psychological studies that have even shown that. Like if you have people who are believing in things that may not, you know, objectively be true in the scientific sense, but they can offer a lot of uh, purpose and, uh, yeah, willpower and motivation to act in a way that people who have a more secular existence simply cannot. 
and when I say secular, I'm also I'm not just talking about religion per se, but just spirituality or just a deeper meaning and purpose greater than the self. It's an element of spirituality. Well, if someone, regardless of what you call it, even if you say defending a a, a, a family compared to defending yourself, you're going to fight harder. More. Yeah. Yes. Which makes me think. For a society to defend that, for that long, against those odds, which was, as I said before, just this endless migration of countless barbarians raiding, uh, losing four-fifths of your empire, uh, going through radical climate change shifts, going through plagues that wiped out half of your population, all hitting you at once, and you kept going. And then, this is the thing that always makes me, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts about it, because I always think that, what motivated Constantine the Eleventh to stay there to the bitter end he was an emperor still, like of a much diminished empire, but as we said before, it was still one of the richest empires of the of, of Europe. He could have easily escaped. There would be many places that would have been very happy to take him. The thing was, like, especially when it came to Byzantine royalty, even back then, the rest of Europe just stood at them in awe because of how educated they were in comparison to everybody else, right? It meant, it meant too much to him. It meant more than his life to be able to represent that kingdom or to lead it or whatever it may be, but... It meant more than his life. And isn't that... And, like, okay, again, this is an emperor, an emperor of an empire that lasted a 1,000 years. Like, his life was pretty good. But there was something else there that just pulled him. Pulled him to stay at the walls until the last second. Honor, commitment, leadership. I just don't think that you'd see it much these days. I really don't. Like, okay, what happened when the... President of Afghanistan was faced with the Taliban coming in, immediately fucked off in a helicopter with as much cash as he could carry. Uh, Scott Morrison, when there was a bushfire, he just went on holiday. Yeah, look, the, the political class of today are uh, lacking the, the honour that many of the uh, militaristic generals of the Middle Ages, I assume, had. Um, Don't you think even when it comes to the president of the Ukraine, I've ever gotten his name, but like, man, I would not be surprised if he pissed off to France, theoretically, if the Ukraine fell. Like, I mean, look, everybody's always just talking about how brave he is at the moment, but he's not really like fighting on, like this guy was on the walls every day, firing down arrows for months on end, hungry like the rest of his soldiers were starving, facing endless cannon bombardment. He was there the whole time, on the front line. Died on the front line. Mm. There's a nobility there that I just don't think exists anymore. Well, there's, there's, I can't attest to how true some of these tales are, but uh, many of the mayors and other political officials in Ukraine have joined the army to fight. Mm. And the Klitschko brothers with these former heavyweight boxers are fighting. They're mm. in the war. Mm. And many of the other Ukrainian boxers I know cannot actually, I mean, it was, Lomachenko was supposed to face Cambosis for the title, for like the undisputed world lightweight title, which would have been a huge achievement. We're talking about like massive boxing glory here. And look, Cambo, it, was, it would have been a walk in a park for him. Cambosis, great fighter, but like a cut below Lomachenko. And he was like, no, i got to defend my homeland. Oh, oh. Maybe it is different. Maybe it is just, maybe it's an Eastern European thing. It could actually just be this, man. Like it could be like way simpler than what I'm talking about. It's just like, like that thing that I was telling you about ages ago when you just see these kind of interactions between whatever that random Twitch stream thing is. 
and like an Albanian and a Serbian come along and it's just like, you fuck my mother. You fuck my mother, you fucking whore. I fucking kill you. I fucking fuck your granddad. Like they just immediately despise each other. Maybe it is just this kind of like bloodline DNA of just thousands of years of bitter blood feuds over like a few meters of dirt. Well, I think yeah, true, but there is also in this time, in particular, in in the West, there is a clear dearth of of honor and nobility and chivalry and all these things that look modern culture has sort of, though they haven't directly uh, denigrated those values. I think an, a, a byproduct that many people, myself included, to a certain degree, would call unfortunate about modern culture, namely, I mean, you know, maybe you could, not just feminism, but just today's culture in general, is that you know men aren't willing to die for things in the way they used to. I remember even as a kid, right? Most of the professions the boys wanted to to be when they were older were things like firefighter, policeman, you, you know, heroic professions. You think about like the culture around the police now. Oh, fuck the police, man! They're all racist, and like Damn. they're they're all pigs and they're dogs. Well, it's like, yeah, th- th- when there's no honor there, y- you know, who's gonna want to die in the line of duty then? Mm. Um, you, you look at the Uvalde, the, the the school shooting that just happened in America. And this is like Texas in America that is supposed to be a bastion of, you know, alpha male. Christian conservative values. These guys just stood outside while kids were dying and didn't do anything. Mm. And, you know, you, you go back 20 years to 9-11 where the firefighters just ran into the building, risked their life to try and save people. Mm. That has gone entirely from the, the consciousness of men in the West today. I mean, look, I'm not in the last podcast. I was like, yeah, the army sounds good, but I don't want to die. Like I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, uh, you know, I'm the I'm a paragon of honor or anything like that. But I, I, I've actually been thinking about that a little bit more lately. Like that is something that is really just completely uh, fallen away from the male psyche of the West. Like the idea of heroism and dying for a cause. And it, I don't think it was that long ago when a lot of uh, boys had that, you know, say what you want. Like, yeah, it's propagandistic to a certain degree, but when you are always hearing these stories about the um, about Gallipoli and about the heroes of the war and about just like these sort of selfless people who were go- going and like saving the day and just putting their life on the line and, you know, that's what you generally thought about when you when you thought of just basic professions even like a policeman or a firefighter uh, or, and especially a soldier and things like that. You know, these are heroes, right? Mm. These are the, the, the heroes in the uniform that everyone looked up to and then for whatever reason, I'm sure they're, they're obviously still extremely heroic. I'm not trying to argue with that in any way, but um, it, you just don't think about it the same way, do you? No. Not at all. Not the, at all. The culture around the police today, like I just said, is – Actually, quite disgusting in my like as conservative as that may sound. Like it's just, yeah. What do you think's going to happen yeah, the, if you want to defund it and like all like, call I, them I hate it. pigs and dogs? It's like everyone who has that idea about the police is either a drug dealer or you know it just has willfully disobeyed the law. And like, yeah, they're pigs to you. Maybe you're the pig. Like you're, you know. No, I hate it so much. I mean, this is coming from someone who was targeted by a police unit for six months wrongfully. Like I still have massive respect for the police. Yeah. I mean, what you were doing there was just noting the the corruption from the higher echelons of power, more coming from the their superiors and then, and then, and then the politicians. That, like a very like, specific designed unit by the higher echelons of power. That's what I was critiquing. I try to make it as clear as I possibly can that it's like, dude, that is not the general cop on the beat. I yeah. really, I really do despise the level of, in fact, actually recently I just did a video uh, reading out just for a laugh, like reading out the Google reviews of police stations. And every single time it was so obvious, as you just said, then when you're reading the review from that person's perspective, how wrong they were in the situation, 
you know, just being like, man, my car was impounded just because it had all of these illegal mods. It's not even fucking dangerous. Fuck you. It's still got airbags in it and shit. It's just like one star. (laughs) It's like, well, I'm sorry, but if you're driving an illegal car, if there's one issue where I'm like firmly, I would say I'm, yeah, I'm right wing. It's law and order. And not only that, the culture that comes with like the respect of police and law enforcement and the rule of law. Like these are things that you just don't understand. Clearly people who have never had to experience crime in their life are the ones that are just saying all this stuff about, oh, the police, they're a racist institution. Like you go and live in a crime-ridden area and tell me if the police are a racist institution. Like like, this is the one one topic that makes me mad. And I can't just- I gotta just add (laughs) it. It's so fucked. I just remember once- these two kids that I know, well, I don't know. They were like, what, 20 or some shit at the time. <laughs> and they went to the Black Lives Matter protest just with the whole like, eh, fuck the police attitude. And anyway, my friend was just picking them up for dinner because they were going to a family dinner afterwards. <laughs> and they, they caught the train back from the city to the North shore and they were wearing all their black gear or whatever it was like, I don't know, the skivvies or whatever the, I can't remember the fashion, but they were wearing like the, the full on get up. Right. And they come out and he comes, they so hilarious. He come out of like the, the station at what North Sydney or something like that. And they've got pepper spray in their eyes and they're coughing and sputtering going like, Ugh. <laughs> and then uh, my friend asked them what was the protest like and they were just like dude it was so hectic man it was just like we're all just yelling like fuck the police and then i got pepper sprayed it was fucking mad and then they went with their rich north shore parents to go eat salmon in an upmarket restaurant and he said that it capsulates those people so well. You couldn't pick a better example, could you? It's just a bunch of rich kids pretending to be these kind of like virtuous warriors that get want to have this nice little taste of danger, enjoyed getting pepper sprayed because it made them feel like these kind of like, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, like French revolutionaries or something like that. And then as soon as the danger's over, yeah, what's for what's for uh, dinner or oh, salmon? Yeah, sick. Okay. And just go back into the suburbs with their fucking huge North Shore mansions. <laughs> Yeah, that's it just like summarizes just so well gross. what you were saying. It's actually just gross, it's man. It's so, like, yeah, huh? it's yeah. Well, go on. You can go and police like you know high crime indigenous areas. Then go on. <sighs> go, don't be racist and go do it. Then good luck. I know. Like, it's how like, long compl- are you going to live like that? You know, no one's denying that the police force <laughs> is imperfect, but this is so comp. Anyway, I, anyway, the point. The point, I guess, coming back to what you were talking about is. I don't see, like, where can men be heroes anymore? Where does a man get to be a hero? Because even the army, right? Like, how much bad press is, 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 you know, when you think about the army now, you think about, oh, you know, in America at least, oh, I don't want to die so that, the you know, the, the Bush family and weapons manufacturers can make more money. You know, like the military-industrial complex. You think about all the, like, Wars that, and this this is absolutely no disrespect to the people who were on the ground actually fighting, but like the decisions that were made, all the wrongful wars of the 20th century that were actually just for, you know, they're just an unscrupulous grabs for power for the CIA or for whatever the like American interest was at the time. It it kind of does put a doubt in your mind as to like, all right, like I I, li- I like the idea of being a hero, but the cause has to be just. Mm. And then you think about even the police, right? That was a that was an avenue for heroism for the average man. You're protecting, you're serving the community. You're going to put you, and yeah, yeah there's a, a huge responsibility that comes with it. Like you got to put your life on the line. I mean, it depends where you're policing. I'm sure you'll, if you police the North Shore or whatever, it's probably not that bad. But you know, <laughs> it's um, not really life on the line. Yeah. No, not probably it's just not. Just look at a graffiti. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just big cocaine bus or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure, look, I'm sure there's still some organised crime there or whatever. But 
And look, yeah, there's a, in the New South Wales police force, there's a lot of corrupt. There's a lot of corruption. Don't get me wrong. And and you know, but and a lot of the criticism of these institutions, I guess, have been fair. But then when you also add the like the diversity element and like the the fact that oh it's a boys club and there's a bad culture, all these things have sort of conspired to now just like to denigrate any pathway to heroism for a man, even just the idea of being a husband and a father, right? There was an idea of chivalry that came with that. And I'm sure if you asked most fathers and husbands today, would you die for your family? They would still absolutely say yes. But I don't think it's as ingrained and as sort of significant to the average man's psyche as it was even just 20 years ago. Even mm. just 20 years ago, when you were the provider and you were, well, not 20, but like you were more likely, I guess, when you go back throughout the 20th century, you were more likely to be the, the, the I guess, the, the leader of the family and you were the provider and there was a sense of status that came with that. Yes, there was power and that power was uh, sometimes, maybe often, uh, unjustly used particularly against the the spouse and that absolutely should be called out. But like when you sort of question that to the point and and sort of denigrated and, and you know culturally deconstructed it in uni- in elite universities with people who've like never had to actually live a middle class, let alone a working class life, yeah, what's happened? there's there's just no avenue for heroism for a man. Mm. How do you become like what's the avenue for heroism now for men? it's it's to become rich and famous basically. To be to be a, 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 a social media star, which is what I am and what I did, don't get me wrong. But like that's, you know, that's not as, I guess, uh, virtuous. Not, no, it's, it's, is it heroism even? It's not even that. It's like glory. Glory, yeah. There's glory in it. There's no heroism. That's true. There's no real heroism. Although like now there's like heroism associated with like, well, be, like crying on a podcast about like, your vulnerability your issues it's like Ugh. sure like that's sometimes whatever that's brave to do but like really you compare that to like running into a burning building to risk your life and save a baby i'm pretty sure that appeals to the male psyche more than like uh, yeah you know cry about the anxiety that you've been feeling i'm like all right fine. i'm not saying don't do that yes you should be open you should be vulnerable all that but like for fuck's sake like come on <laughs> like, <it's- laughs> Cry as much as we want, but like you're not a hero. You're not a hero for crying. Okay, yeah, all right. It is, I guess, a symbol of like emotional intelligence. Where in when you take into account the backdrop of like just sort of like rigid stoicism that a lot of men have had to live up to. But I mean, where is the avenue for, for heroism for me now? Look, if you're, I'm not defending this in any way, but like. If you fight for ISIS, you are a hero. You are in many. You are you are fighting for a, a in your mind what is like a just holy cause. You are willing to die for it, and yeah, you're going to go to heaven to get your pure harem of whatever seventy two virgins. That's also a big part of it. But it's hard to compete when people are willing to like literally kill themselves for this cause. You know that's pretty. That's a that's a that's a that's powerful ammunition. Mm. Psychologically, mm, 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 mm. what are you? What are people willing to die for today? No, it's like a it's it's, it's a third world thing. Yeah, I mean, people I would, would die I, for things in the third world. It probably is like a, still a large cohort of. of-